I'm your host, Alec Crawford, founder and CEO of Artificial Intelligence Risk, Inc., and this is AI Risk Reward, a podcast about balancing the risk and reward using AI personally, professionally, and as a large organization. We will discuss hot topics such as, will AI take my job or make it better? When I ask ChatGPT work questions, is that even safe? From an ethical perspective, is it enough for big companies to anonymize private data before using it? Probably not. I'm discussing these issues with AI experts to answer burning questions and stay ahead of the curve on AI. I'd also like to give a shout out to our podcast producer and audio engineering team at Troutman Street Audio. You can check them out on LinkedIn. Hi, everyone. It's your host, Alec Crawford, and our very special guest today is Chris Donahoe, Executive Vice President and Head of AI Strategy at Edelman Smithfield. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much, Alec. Glad to be here. Great to have you. So let's kick it off with, how did you like Georgetown's business school? Uh, I, I loved business school, and it was one of the best decisions I have made. And and the reason I loved it so much is it, I felt like business school gave me a toolbox for approaching any decision I might face in my profession, in the business world, whether it's an HR decision or strategy decision or communications decision or investment decision. Um, and I'm someone that likes to be able to uh, tackle anything that's thrown my way. And so I felt well-equipped coming out of Georgetown. The, the other reason I loved it is MBAs tend to be a little bit more rare in the communications world. Um, and I think it, it really equipped me well to advise a lot of my clients today who are C-suite leaders in different enterprises, right? Um, so I can have conversations uh, and work out decisions with them kind of in their language, understanding the, the world as they see it. Yeah, great point. I, I also saw you took a class in AI at MIT. Was was that worth it? What were your key takeaways there? I uh, my my wife says I'm an I'm an enthusiast, um, and I think that is true. And um, I took this really fascinating certificate program in AI and business strategy through MIT earlier last year um, for a couple reasons. One, I think life is more fun when you're constantly learning. Um, and also at the time in early 2023, I wanted to understand uh, what other business leaders were being taught and learning about uh, AI and its implications amid this big wave we were riding after the release of chat GPT. Um, and, you know, one of the key takeaways, uh, that I walked away from that with was this really great understanding and appreciation for the fact that AI is really gonna impact um, and have implications for practically every facet of, of uh, every part of a company's operations. I think there's a very few parts of a business today that are not gonna be impacted in some material way uh, you know, over the next three to five years. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, I love the whole lifelong learning thing. And, and speaking of that, you mentioned Robert Caro's biography series about Lyndon B. Johnson to me earlier. Tell us about that. <laughs> My wife, in addition to uh, describing me as an enthusiast, 
also likes to refer to um, our family's LBJ years, which is that period of that multi-year period of time when uh, I was reading Robert Caro's kind of epic biographical series on Lyndon Johnson. It's, uh, I think, approaching 5,000 pages now. He's written four of five books that he's planned. Um, it's an incredible work of art. You know, it's 5,000 pages that you can't put down. Um, and I think Caro is one of the like truly great artists of her, of our time. And his medium was biography. And in Lyndon Johnson, he you know, found his, his perfect subject for that, for that medium. The, the other reason I love that series so much is that, you know, I enjoy understanding systems and how complex systems operate. I think it's one of the reasons that I love AI so much and understanding how these all, how all these component pieces can come together to produce something really extraordinary. Um, and Caro has that same kind of obsession with systems, only his system is political power. You know, he's really interested in how people come to acquire it and then how they leverage it once they have it. And again, LBJ was like the perfect uh, subject for that kind of analysis. Um, so I'm not going to say you should go and devote three to four years of your life to, to digest all that, but you could find a good summary out there. The, um, the other really kind of impactful takeaway for me from uh, my LBJ years was this real appreciation for the fact that the the good and the bad in the world is kind of really mixed up um, in complicated and sometimes uncomfortable ways, right? We we really don't live in a world that uh, just has good or bad. It's it's mixed up, um, and that makes it tricky and difficult to navigate sometimes. And it's not always how we want it to be, but it's the reality that uh, we so often have to work in. Yeah, super interesting. You know, I, I read uh, William Manchester's biography of Winston Churchill, same thing, like just epically long. And, and I, I cheated. I, <laughs> I listened to it as uh, on Audible in my car on my hour and a half commute. And uh, that's what let me finish it in less than a year. I like it. So now you, now you know I, my secret. I haven't read Manchester's uh, Churchill biography. Should I add that to my list? It's uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's really, really good. Uh, but I'd, so I, I definitely recommend it. But I, I recommend it as Audible as opposed to the five-pound book sitting on your lap. <laughs> so then you spent uh, more than six years at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. What What is their mission and what was your role there? Yeah, so the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is an amazing place. It is the world's um, biggest business advocacy group you'd kind of think of it as a as a champion for entrepreneurship and free enterprise right its role is to advocate for business and free enterprise um, in society in um, the popular imagination and then of course uh, through 
policymaking and advocacy as well at the federal level, local level, um, and other global and international bodies. Um, during my uh, half decade or so there, I, I had two pretty distinct roles. Um, I worked within the Chamber's Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness, essentially their um, financial services group focused on markets and the financial service in industry uh, and that uh, sector of the business world. For about four years, I led business development for um, that group. And I traveled the country meeting with uh, business leaders, CEOs, founders, general counsels, CFOs from every type of business, every size business you can imagine. And, um, you know, those were formative years in my career. And one of the things that I took away from that experience was a realization of just how many incredible companies and businessmen and business women and entrepreneurs are out there that no one has ever heard of companies in these niche different parts of a sector or an industry or a supply chain that do incredible things have incredible origin stories and are benefiting their communities and workforce in really tremendous ways but the the brand profile just you know, isn't there. Most people have not heard of them. Um, and so that was a really nice kind of window into uh, really the the American entrepreneurial spirit that that I really, really loved. That's awesome. Are they doing anything with AI at all? I, I, I haven't really followed, followed the Chamber of Commerce. So Yeah, they they are. They're, they've um, approached it. Uh, actually, we're an early leader. They established a uh, commission on AI maybe about two years ago at this point and pulled together some really sharp minds from the policymaking and business community to uh, kind of establish a framework that uh, federal and local policymakers can use to understand kind of um, the categories of policymaking that they um, uh, should approach, uh, how to approach it, what's most pressing, and kind of what are the regulatory frameworks that uh, they can consider to be applied uh, most effectively um, in this case. I think certainly the commission's work should be viewed as a, a living document, as I think you should do with anything in AI these days, moving so quickly. Um, but the, the chamber is definitely an early mover there. Give them credit for that. Oh, that's great. And and now, of course, you're at Edelman Smithfield or Edelman Smithfield. What got you interested in communications? Yeah. So uh, I, I found communications in the last few years. I was at the chamber, actually. So I had done that business development role there for a while um, and then became really interested in kind of the, the strategy and operational element of the storytelling work that we did at the chamber. And so um, an opportunity came up to, to lead that communications work for their Center for Capital Markets. And I did that for a few years. Um, and then I had worked closely with Edelman actually as a client while I was at the chamber. And they were looking to um, build a financial services public affairs team as part of their uh, office here in Washington, D.C. And that was uh, exactly what I was doing day in, day out. Um, 
And at the same time, I had a really good relationship with the uh, individual at Edelman, a gentleman named Sean Neary, who was leading that effort. And I really have tremendous respect for him to this day, one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. So the opportunity to kind of expand my uh, remit in communications to focus kind of on broader corporate storytelling, um, to build something in this public affairs team here at Edelman, and then to work with people I really admire professionally, uh, that's what made me take the jump over at Edelman. And it's been really rewarding in ways that I um, did not anticipate. Edelman's the only communications agency that I've worked at. Um, and it is the world's largest communications and PR agency. But at the same time, it is incredibly entrepreneurial. If you have an idea, if you want to give something a shot, if you see an opportunity, you can go and do it. There's very few limiting constraints at Edelman. And that's one of the things that I have found so rewarding because um, one of my chief occupational hazards is every couple of years, I see something else off in the distance that looks really interesting and fun. And I want to go and do that. And I've been able to do that now uh, three or four different times all within Edelman. First building that public affairs team, um, then in an operational role for our US financial services practice um, called Edelman Smithfield, of course. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, saw the opportunity developing uh, in AI advisory in the communications world um, and got the green light to go and, and build that business for us. And, and it's been quite the ride ever since. Super cool. So, so talk a little bit about your first boss at Edelman, who, who you like so much. What, what made him a great boss? Yeah, so Sean, Sean is this incredible combination of, um, he's really capable, deep experience in the subject matter and policymaking communications, um, and a very authentic leader, right? He's transparent with his team, um, with his peers, he leads through example um, and deeply, deeply cares about the people that work with and for him, right? And I've been around enough to know you don't find that in, in everybody you work with, right? So he not only has been such a rewarding um, peer and model to work with, but you know, someone I, I really look up to. It, that, that transparency um, and authenticity is, um, it's just vital. I mean, I think authenticity is like the currency of the future. Yeah, sounds right. And, and look, the communications business, the PR business must be changing with AI and changes on the other changes on the internet and social media. Like what, what are, what are some of the big changes you've observed recently and, and what's a change that you're predicting? Yeah. So my uh, interest and fascination with AI um, probably began about three years ago, started tuning into what was happening in the space, kind of in the early GPT-2 era, and just was playing around with new generative AI tools. 
um, on the side for fun. And it quickly became apparent just how transformative the technology, even at that point, that early kind of like GPT-2 era, just what an impact it was going to have on the communications and marketing profession, because it was already so good at so many of the creative uh, tasks and roles and deliverables and work products that we generate every day as communicators and marketers. Um, and the capability has only continued to accelerate. Um, we saw you know, the world really wake up to that with the release of chat GPT a year and a half ago. Um, and so what is happening today in communications is a lot of agencies and businesses or corporate communications teams are waking up to the fact that they really need to rethink their operating models or business models in some cases, right? Because the workflows in the profession that have been established for a decade or more in some cases are being upended um, overnight. The talent pipeline that has been developed is being upended overnight. The, the, the value chain of the goods and services that we certainly provide our clients um, through the agency business model um, is, is being reshuffled, right? And so um, that process is well underway today. Last year was, um, I mean, truly a wake up call for many. However, the real impact I don't think is gonna be felt for probably another six or seven years, but then it's gonna happen all at once, all right? So I talked to um, leading, corporate communicate, leading corporate communicators at you know, Fortune 500 brands every day that you would recognize, and a, a lot of them are still at square one or square one and a half when it comes to thinking through not only how to leverage the technology that's available, today, but what the implications are for uh, the communications profession and their corporate function. Um, so, you know, a lot of them are getting educated, they're educating their teams, they're beginning to work with internal stakeholders to bring some of those tools to bear. Um, but the, the foundation of the foundations underpinning the practice of communications are changing really dramatically. Um, and there's gonna come a point, as I mentioned, about six six or seven years from now, uh, when all of a sudden um, the leading communicators and communications teams and agencies um, uh, will turn out to be the ones that have been investing the time and effort and resources between now and then. And if you haven't been, if you're in that position and haven't been doing that legwork over the next half decade or so, it's going to be really hard to catch up at that point. So I'm a real fierce advocate for um, kind of getting a grasp on what's going on now, um, kind of where the technology and capabilities are headed down the road, and, and what you can do to prepare your team or your company um, 
for that moment. Yeah, my, my bet is that that will also be true for more than half of the Fortune 500 companies. I think that's right? probably not, the case. Not just not just your industry. And and to go back to your clients and companies, you know, have they changed their focus of what they are asking for recently or no? They're they're asking for for more, certainly. I think AI as uh, as something that eats up their brain space. Um, it it hasn't replaced something that was already there. It's added an additional thing for them to think about. Um, you know, by and large, our our the clients I work with every day are dealing with the ins and outs of of supporting their business or enterprise or brand. Right, the corporate announcements. Um, the leadership campaign, the rebrand, the crisis moment. Uh, AI is is an additional layer that kind of sits on top of all those things. And the, the tricky thing about it is you need to be thinking about it and understanding, becoming educated, becoming more proficient um, as, a, as a generative AI or AI tool user while you're doing all those other things. So um, you really have to walk and chew gum at the same time in order to set yourself up for success uh, down the road. Um, but I'm certainly seeing a lot more companies um, begin to establish the the frameworks they need to, at least from a communications and marketing perspective, you know, the frameworks and processes internally. Uh, that will then allow them to build momentum over the next couple of years. I'll be the first to admit, you know, last spring, uh, I thought all those frameworks and processes would be uh, kind of firmly established by the fall. Um, but it takes it takes some time to to move some of these big ships. Yeah, that makes sense. And. I've, I've been seeing you writing uh, uh, about AI. Like, how often are you publishing at this point? Yeah, I, I'm publishing about once a month or so, every six weeks. Um, I'm out talking to, as I mentioned, clients, um, thought leaders, experts in the space every day. And I do a lot of education and training sessions for um, our clients, Fortune 500 companies, and the like. And so, typically, what I do is is in those sessions, if I begin to see kind of a trend emerging in the questions I'm being asked, or the concerns that people are raising, or even things that I think are important um, but aren't don't seem to resonate with people, or it's not uh, top of mind for them. Uh, that's normally the moment where I sit back and think, okay, why is that? Why am I getting that recurring question? How can I put some thinking together that kind of helps answer that um, or provide a point of view at scale, right? And so then I'll go and write a piece and uh, place it as an op-ed or a column somewhere, publish it on on LinkedIn. It's fun. I think writing is a is a great tool to force you to uh, provide your own clarity of thinking. So I love it for that. Absolutely. And who is someone you really admire in your field? 
So I go back to when we were talking about the chamber, I mentioned that entrepreneurs are really my heroes, right? I've never started my own business. I don't think I really have the kahunes to, to do that. My risk uh, tolerance is a little low. So some of my heroes are entrepreneurs and really serial entrepreneurs. And when I think of my field, I roll um, journalists and journalism into that as well, right? We're kind of two uh, sides of the same coin. And one people I, or one person I really admire in that is Jim Vandehei, who's a co-founder um, and CEO at Axios. Um, and what he has been able to do over the years, um, not only at Axios, but before that at Politico is just incredibly impressive. And it's incredibly impressive in a really difficult and challenging industry that's really dealing with a lot of kind of uh, macroeconomic pressures and, and different dynamic forces that have made it really challenging for a lot of publications to, to see today. But, um, you know, his kind of uh, seemingly ceaseless energy, endless creativity, and incredibly curious mind, I think, has been able to create, uh, along with his other co-founders, something really, uh, really incredible. He also, he also, at Axios, is able to, they've been able to strike this wonderful balance between giving their customers, their readers, what they want while also giving them what they need, right? And that is, it's not always an easy balance uh, to strike. So I really commend uh, him and the team over there for that. Yeah, good point. And they're turning back to AI and thinking about large language models. Do you think we've reached the limits of large language models or are they gonna get better from here? That's a that's a good question. I think if you if you've been uh, kind of tracking some of what Sam Alton has been suggesting over the past couple of weeks about the capabilities of GPT-5 that may be on the horizon this year. Um, uh, I'm not willing to go out on a limb and say we've reached the limits of, uh, of the models. Um, and I think the capabilities are going to continue to advance. I'm really excited to see what some of the uh, frontier map model labs are able to roll out this year. I think there's really cool things coming down the pipe uh, through the lens of uh, you know increased um, uh, math capability. You saw Google DeepMind with some of their um, geometry uh, news last week. Um, the multi-modality that's coming out, the smaller model size, making it more efficient, easier to put in. Uh, edge devices like mobile phones. It's gonna be really. It's gonna be a really, really fun year in terms of capability announcements. But the thing that I think is important to keep in mind is kind of the limits of the technology and the capabilities. Um, it's not just the capabilities of the models themselves, right? Uh, limits aren't just the model capability. It's also um, defined by the data sets that you're able to apply them to, right? And so that's why things like model size and efficiency, I think, are really crucial and are going to be a big driver of some of the news we see this year. Because 
Um, it's going to allow you to apply uh, these large language models to data sets that were really um, not within reach for many models last year. You think about edge devices, right? Having a model on your device, accessing and interacting with your personal data, location data, emails, contacts, um, as long as that information is staying securely on your device, I think you're going to see a lot of end users become much more comfortable with interacting and using a model in a lot more practical and useful everyday situations. So you know, the expansion of kind of the data sets that models are going to be able to be applied to this year is really exciting. I think the other thing that we um, you should think about when you think about uh, the limits of the models is the limit of the impact, right? So the impact of large language models is going to continue to accelerate regardless of whether capabilities improve because adoption and familiarity is going to grow, right? A lot of people um, have very limited exposure to leading AI technology today, but over 18, 24 months, that's going to grow really rapidly. And so I think you're going to see the impact really proliferate um, uh, as that familiarity grows. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and what do you think the biggest threat from AI will be over the next 10 years? I don't think it comes from the technology itself. I think the biggest threat is... Um, is a societal one. I think it's a, you know, the, the threat of a backlash against innovation itself. Edelman releases this really, uh, really fascinating piece of research every year called the Edelman Trust Barometer. We just released um, the newest iteration at the World Economic Forum last year. And that, and that was the headline. It was the risk of a backlash against innovation. Um, the, the challenges that are posed and the risks that are posed by the technology itself are, are really important. Things like misinformation, cybersecurity risks, um, geopolitical risks, but the real existential one is a risk that we have a world that turns its back on kind of responsible scientific progress. That, that is the, the thing I think we need to guard against. Um, and why I really encourage everyone that I talk to to embrace their responsibility and role as a kind of responsible innovation advocate in this moment. Yeah, great advice. And how do you think U.S. politicians might regulate AI the next decade or so? <laughs> uh, uh, political prognostication is a risky business these days. I did not see Ron DeSantis dropping out over the weekend. So uh, he fooled me there. Um, but I think you can see, you can see patterns that have developed um, in terms of policymaking and regulation over the past couple of years, um, as regulators have experimented with different approaches to uh, policymaking and regulating industry. And some of those have proven um, pretty effective. And I think one that you'll see is this uh, concept of regulation through enforcement. So I think the prospects for um, kind of a, a robust 
legislative framework around AI are pretty slim um, over the next year, year and a half. Um, I think with the presidential uh, cycle and election here in the U.S. in 2024, um, some of the policymaking coming out of the White House is going to be pretty limited. So the action is going to be at the regulatory agencies. And I think where you're going to see a lot of the heat is this uh, approach through regulation through enforcement. So rather than regulators kind of proposing, um, soliciting comments and feedback, finalizing a new regulatory rule that provides that framework, I think what they're going to do is um, kind of see a violation, see kind of an overstepping of, uh, of the kind of corporate behavior uh, that they deem preferable. And they're going to bring enforcement actions around that. And through a series of different enforcement actions related to AI technology, uh, corporate stakeholders and decision makers are going to be able to create uh, an outline of kind of what's permissible contact, um, permissible conduct, and um, and we'll use that to navigate the regulatory regime moving forward. So it really puts a lot of businesses in an uncomfortable position. Business loves certainty, um, but I think this is where we're going to see the action from a policymaking and regulatory perspective over the next uh, year, year and a half. Yeah. Speaking of businesses, let's let's turn to our advice section and think about a hypothetical CEO of a Fortune 500 company who's doing all kinds of things in AI, maybe with clients internally and research, and and obviously they want to communicate that uh, to their investors, to the world, to their board. Like, what's your what's your advice there? How do they uh, how do they tread that line? The there's a, a few things you need to do. First, you need to have a really good grasp of how you're applying the technology in your business today, right? What are the use cases that you're prototyping? What are the use cases that you've uh, rolled out across various functions? What are the risks that are inherent from that, either from an operational perspective or a reputation perspective or an investment perspective? Um, you need to have really strong relationships and kind of connective tissue with the subject matter experts within your organization, right? A lot of times that is going to be kind of a chief innovation or officer or chief technology officer, or chief data officer. Um, but oftentimes you can go a few layers below that to really get to folks that um, truly understand uh, the nuances of, of what's going on in the systems and how the models are being used and, and the potential risks and rewards from those applications. Um, and you need to do that legwork, that research to build the relationships, to develop the narrative. Um, and then you need to tailor that narrative and the story you want to tell to the audience, the customers, stakeholders that are really relevant to your business. Uh, you can't boil the ocean, um, and uh, so you you know you got to have a um, really put in the effort to understand like how can we place ourselves at the intersection of what is going to have an impact and matter for our customers, and then what's viable and practical for our business today. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And how can corporate and world leaders use AI for good? It's a great question. The I think AI just amplifies what's going on today, right? I mean, in my profession, it makes you more creative in a creative profession. It makes you faster in a profession that often relies on speed. Um, and so when people ask me about AI for good, I, I suggest first thinking like, how do you ensure that setting aside AI, the work you're doing every day, the direction that you're taking an organization and company is having a positive impact on the world. Um, and once you have that in place, you're assured of that positive direction and impact, then layering AI on top of that is only going to accelerate and amplify that positive impact you're able to have on the world. Where I get concerned is with uh, individuals, corporate business leaders, or companies who, who really do want to have that positive impact, um, but are not investing the the time and resources necessary to be a leader in AI or technological innovation within their space. Because what is going to happen over the next half decade to a decade is even though their organization is uh, has the mission of a certain positive impact in the world, their ability to deliver on that impact is going to be substantially reduced um, and minimized by their lack of technological aptitude, right? Um, so I think it's really incumbent on anyone who wants to have a positive impact to be that kind of responsible or that advocate for responsible innovation uh, within their organization or their team, um, because it is it is becoming kind of an essential component of realizing. Um, any individual team or organization's goal moving forward. Great, and, com and completing our advice section, what advice do you have for uh, a young younger person who wants to do your job? What should they do or learn or study? I would say immerse yourself in the subject matter and experiment, right? Don't just, don't just read and listen um, use a variety of different tools, whether they're generative AI models or different predictive models that you might have access to, access to through uh, the really fantastic open source models that are available today. Um, immerse yourself in it by reading daily. Stay current on the news. Stay current on some of the leading research that's being published out of academic institutions. Um, out of corporate research labs, um, and and think in in systems, right? Like take yourself out of um, the news of the day. Take yourself out of uh, what you're able to do with a particular tool, and think about how is this going to impact the future of the profession that I'm interested in? How is this gonna change um, the, the objective or goal or vision that I 
have for the change I want to see in the world, right? You really have to take a step back um, and think about kind of the, how the dominoes are going to fall. Great answer. Good answer. So now we're going to turn to our last few minutes, the lightning round, where I'll mention something and you'll tell me whether you think it's underrated or overrated or maybe fairly rated. Sometimes happens. We're going to kick it off with living in the D.C. area, underrated or overrated? Underrated. I don't think people give it enough credit, um, probably because they uh, gets a bad rap on the news all the time. But D.C. feels like a small town, but it has all the benefits of a big city, right? You get some good restaurants. You get a direct flight to practically anywhere in the world. Um, but you still know most of your neighbors, so it's fun. Cool. Uh, light beer, underrated or overrated? <laughs> uh, I'm a light beer fan. Uh, I think the, the IPA craze of the past decade is a little too, a little too heavy for me. So we'll go with underrated. Uh, CrossFit as a hobby, underrated or overrated? Yeah, I'm a, I love CrossFit. I'm going to say underrated. Um, when I was younger, I did CrossFit a lot to, I want to be able to lift more, be a lot stronger. Now as I'm getting older, I'm just trying to stay flexible. So I, so I stretch a lot and it keeps me moving. My wife and I also built a gym in our garage here. And, and honestly, I think it's made us better parents. Awesome. And, and, uh, and it doesn't snow that much in DC. So you're in good shape there. Don't try that in Boston folks. And, uh, using AI to assist in communications at the moment underrated. I mean, it's truly revolutionary for the communications profession. Um, most people haven't woken up and woken up to that yet, but, uh, communicator, 10 years from now is going to look completely different than what they do today. TV cooking shows, underrated or overrated? TV cooking shows. Over, I say overrated. If we're talking about Top Chef, that's not really my uh, cup of tea. But give me Chef's Table all day, or the documentary type feature. Stephen Ambrose as an author. Oh, that's a good one. Underrated? Because I don't... I don't know how, uh, I think people should read them more. Um, yeah. Great author. Love D-Day, for example. Love D-Day. And Citizen Soldiers, like, he just is incredible knack for giving you this, like, firsthand view on the ground in these pivotal world moments. Yeah. Underrated. Camping vacations. Underrated or overrated? Man, I can't get enough of them. Uh, I think people should camp more. I guess I'll say underrated because I assume they don't camp as much as they should. But, uh, you know, when I take my kids out and we spend a few days in the woods, like it's just good for everybody. Triathlons, underrated or overrated? Overrated? I've That's probably just because I've never done one. I'm not even sure that I'd be able to uh, if I set out at it. I'm impressed by by everyone that does. Neighborhood restaurants, underrated or overrated? Underrated. A good restaurant, it's like a cornerstone of your neighborhood. It's like one of life's 
great blessings. We have this awesome place around the corner from us here called Cafe Colleen, this cool little French bistro. It's just, it's the best. The movie, The Lives of Others, underrated or overrated? Underrated? As I would be amazed if uh, I could count on one hand the number of your listeners that have seen it. It won an Academy Award a few years ago, but in the story about uh, East German secret police, and it's like one of the best examples of that um, idea I was talking about earlier about the good and the bad of the world being mixed up in really, really complicated ways. Foie gras as part of a meal, underrated or overrated? <laughs> oh, I just said how much I love a French bistro. Uh, still overrated. Um, it's too, it's too rich. It's too heavy. Just like, just like IPAs, I guess. And finally, the existential risk of AI in the next decade, underrated or overrated? Overrated. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we got to get to work. You know, we got to address that stuff, but let's jump in and get it done. Awesome. Well, this has been Chris Donahoe, Executive Vice President and Head of AI Strategy at Edelman Smithfield. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alec. Appreciate it. You are listening to the AI Risk Reward Podcast with your host, Alec Crawford. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, for example, Apple Podcasts, production and sound engineering by Troutman Street Audio. You can find them on LinkedIn. Please like, subscribe, and comment.